namotasam guvatorahato samasam buddhasam namotasam guvatorahato samasam buddhasam namotasam guvatorahato samasam buddhasam buddhang namang sangkang namasam I thought this evening it could be useful to spend some time considering the views that we have um, about spiritual life, how we view spiritual practice, how we view each other, how we view the world how we view this existence. In other words, our relationship to views. Anybody who has read the very basics of Buddhism will be aware of how the Buddha formulated the path of practice leading to liberation in terms of the eightfold path and it begins with right view. And to some this might seem surprising. I perhaps would expect that an explanation of the spiritual life would begin with learning how to behave yourself properly, you know, keep moral precepts and be generous. And Of course those virtues are included in the path but it seems not insignificant that the Buddha began uh, his teachings speaking about the view the fundamental view that we hold and so the fact that the Eightfold Path begins with right view uh, seems to be suggest that it's something we should spend time looking into you know, what sort of views do we hold about spiritual practice and importantly uh, how do we hold those views I can still remember when I was in the process of joining the monastic community in Thailand in 1970 four it might have been 75 sometime back then and there was a lot of uh, discussion amongst the 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 foreign monks you know i was living in a in a um, portion of this monastery in bangkok where all the non-thai monks lived and there's lots of discussions about which teachers had right view and which teachers had wrong view uh, it struck me as fairly audacious that these <laughs> very young uh, people, some of them just recently off the hippie trail, would be examining and having an opinion about uh, these great teachers about who had right view and who had wrong view. But it did seem to occupy a, a lot of uh, attention and, and come up in conversation. And 
So I got on to think, well, this must be very important, this and right view, and I don't want to end up with some teacher that's teaching wrong view. And, and so I, I remember asking this young monk who was uh, down from Ajahn Chah's monastery. His name was Warapanya, who later became well-known for translating large sections of Ajahn Chah's teachings. And, and I was asking Warapanya, how does Ajahn Chah speak about right view? And I guess I was expecting some reply that was like a formula that you'd read in a book and uh, explaining this is right view, this is wrong view. But what he said uh, really pulled me up short. And what he said was, Ajahn Chah says right view is not clinging to any views. That was not what I expected. So in other words, yes, the views that we hold, like faith in the Four Noble Truths and confidence in the Buddha's teachings, and these views matter, but also it matters tremendously how we hold our views. And as I later found out, Ajahn Chah said that you know, even the Buddha's teachings are wrong view if you cling to them. Of course, Ajahn Shah was not speaking from the theoretical perspective. He was talking about, uh, from a practice perspective, uh, even the Buddha's teachings, uh, if we are relating to them in not the suitable, skillful way, then we spoil them. Uh, we increase suffering. We don't progress in the path to freedom from suffering. Yeah. So the views we hold and how we hold our views. Yeah. When it comes to considering the views we have about spiritual practice, yeah. in some cases it seems that um, in all religions, and including Buddhism, a lot of people view uh, the spiritual life as pursuing a certain set of special experiences. Mm. If you're a Buddhist, you have this super experience of enlightenment that you're perhaps aiming for, and in the meantime you're looking to experience the jhanas and, and experience insights and experience wisdom and experience tranquility. And, and if you belong to other religions, well then you have other sets of experience which you're striving to have. After a few years of following this approach, following such views, I concluded that actually that wasn't working. Yeah. Pursuing a certain set of spiritual experiences, special experiences, holding the view that that's what we're supposed to be doing, simply wasn't working. Yeah. And what did reveal itself as being more relevant and more beneficial was emphasizing, was paying attention not to the experiences that one might like or want to have, but, but paying attention to awareness itself. Mm. Giving emphasis to the receptivity of experience. And it doesn't take a lot of effort to recognize that this subtle shift in attention 
gives us access to this dimension. Yeah. We can be focusing on ideas of experience or that we might have or in the future or memories of experiences we have had in the past or struggling with experiences to either cling to them or get rid of the ones that we're having now. Or we can shift and register the way in which we're receiving experience. And, and what comes from uh, viewing practices cultivating awareness rather than cultivating special experiences, what comes from that is a, is a way of being able to learn from everything, to learn from all experiences, the agreeable and the disagreeable, a form of practice that is much more uh, transportable. You can transport this practice anywhere, whatever's happening. If awareness itself is what we're paying attention to, if that's how we view the spiritual life, is cultivating the purity of receptivity. Right practice means being able to receive this moment, this experience, its physicality, its emotionality, the mental level, coarse and subtle levels, to receive all of this experience without adding anything to it, without taking anything away from it. It's a very different approach and one that I find beneficial. So the view that we have of the spiritual life certainly conditions the kind of effort that we make and it's worth looking into. And not just the view but how we relate to it. One could accept this view and say, Oh, Ajahnendo's view on practice, that sounds very good. And then we could cling to it and start having arguments with people who have different views. So there's the view and there's the how we relate to the view. Both are very worth paying attention to. So the how we approach spiritual life, how we approach each other. the views that we have of each other. How do we view each other? Certainly the way we view each other is going to condition how we feel about each other. There's a very beautiful discourse that many of you will be familiar with in the scriptures where the Buddha was visiting these three monks living in the forest and the Buddha was ask them how they were getting on together and they spoke about how they cultivated a particular attitude or a particular way of seeing each other, seeing each other with kindness seeing each other with kind eyes is the expression that's used this is not being hippy dippy this is, this is about cultivating a way that works. This is a way of cultivating conducive conditions that uh, prosper practice. And these three monks went on to describe the benefits that they found by making this effort to view each other kindly, to look upon each other with kind eyes, to speak and act and publicly and privately to relate to each other in this kindly manner and 
created a very conducive atmosphere and, and then went on to describe the benefits in their practice, uh, advantages in developing such a view. If we haven't stopped to inspect, for instance, the, the views we have, for instance, of each other, then we might be entertaining views that are really getting in the way, creating obstructions. It's very easy. Uh, conditioning, early life experiences and uh, examples that we've seen in the world around us, we can be developing distinctly unhelpful views. And, and if we don't become aware of them, they can get in the way of benefit. And some time ago we had a, a, a junior monk living in our community here who, who uh, told me in no uncertain terms that he didn't think paying attention to community was of any benefit. And I raise the subject, not really, because it, uh, it's my experience that harmonious community is very beneficial. It's like listening to beautiful music being played when the, when the uh, members of the band or the orchestra are really paying attention to each other. Of course you pay attention to your own instrument, but you listen to the others as well. And when there's that cooperation, there's something extra uh, that's greater than the collective of the individuals struck up. And like playing uh, two particular notes together, a harmonic can get struck up. Harmonious cooperative community seems to create something that's very conducive. And, and I would suggest even a level of, of increased access to intelligence, uh, something very special in cooperative spiritual community. And so I was a bit surprised when this, this young monk told me that he thought it was a pointless uh, waste of time. And, um, and, but it was evident because he was, he was a source of considerable discord in the community and I, I wasn't um, particularly disappointed when he left. And, but then he went and caused discord and disharmony in another community and I suspect they probably weren't too unhappy when he left there as well and he eventually left the whole community went to live somewhere else so, and I hope he's doing very well but that view that it doesn't matter is, doesn't seem to be the view that the Buddha was alluding to when he was reporting on his experience of meeting with these three monks living harmoniously in the forest, viewing each other with kindliness and so it's worth pausing to look at the views we have and, and see how they express themselves in the way we feel. For instance, you know, the views we have of each other, how do we feel about each other? Do we have feelings of gratitude and appreciation for each other? Do we tend to pay attention to how fortunate it is to have each other's company? And I don't just mean in a in a lovely environment like this, where it's very obvious, but even in everyday society, where we may not necessarily know the people we are with, but just the fact that, that this is, a, generally speaking, a very safe country to live in, and how fortunate that is, and how fortunate we are to have each other's company. You 
you're going to the doctor's surgery and you know, how fortunate it is to have such ready access to medical care. And, and we could be looking at the, the receptionist there who's, who's um, perhaps not in a particularly good mood because you know, the NHS is understaffed and, and she's being hassled and uh, uh, insulted by other people there. And yeah. We could focus on how she should improve herself and, or we could focus on uh, appreciation and sensitivity. We could empathise with the struggle that she's having. And so does our attention go in the direction of being empathetic, sensitive to those that we meet, forgiving, or does it go towards being, for instance, judgmental? Yeah. Now, feeling judgmental is, is uh, that's a very normal view for a lot of us. And you don't have to look very far back into our conditioning and the scientific education that we've had, which uh, doesn't give a lot of room to uh, appreciating the mystery of life, but rather emphasizes uh, discriminative intelligence, which, of course, definitely has its place. You know, we're very fortunate to have the uh, very decent education that we've all had. But when it goes out of balance, then this discriminative intelligence becomes compulsive. Yeah. And, and we become identified as it, and we just can't stop criticizing it. Interesting also, a talk Ajahn Suchito gave on the subject where he'd been reading up on the structure of the brain and, and what a large percentage of the brain has developed to be looking for things that are going wrong. It's a, presumably something that our brains evolved when we were in much more dangerous situations than we're in now. And so it's necessary to uh, avoid being pulled into being hypercritical to work on the view that we might have, that somehow there's an advantage to always be criticizing, to always be judging. So whether it's the education we had or biological argument or maybe the religious conditioning, we were told very early on in life that we're all damaged goods. And so paying attention to these feelings, tracing them back, Sometimes, actually, just going back and feeling the feeling is enough to dissolve it. And that view's not there. Sometimes we maybe have to listen for the story that that feeling is telling us. And, and then the view reveals itself. The story reveals itself. And, and then when it's brought into the light of awareness, it dissolves and disappears. And of course, talking like this it, it can make it sound easy when... In fact, it's not necessarily easy. A lot of these views, these deluded views we have about ourselves, about each other, about existence, are very tricky and, and can be very, sometimes very deeply entrenched and take years of investigation, and feeling investigation, feeling our way into this moment what we're experiencing, but not overly emphasizing the experience. The experience itself is not the point. Rather, it's the quality of receptivity. How freely can we receive this experience so that we can let go of any view that we're holding? And the purification of views is not just 
reading what the Buddha had to say about right view and then clinging to it, but it's freeing up the distortions of seeing and also learning how to how to hold views more lightly. In our investigation of views, we can see that when we repeatedly follow a particular view, it becomes a rigid habit. habit. And that rigidity is, uh, it feels so normal. Yeah, but if we do that to each other, it's a very unhelpful and very unkind thing to do. Yeah. He's just like that. Well, you know, he's a, he's a Leo. What else do you expect? You know, <laughs> or whatever a label, other label we might put on him. Or, you know, he's from Yorkshire. No disrespect intended. It's just an example there. You know, we, can, we can hold to rigid views about each other and about ourselves. I'm this sort of a person. Well, we, we don't have to believe in these fixed views. The invitation in this Buddhist practice is to find skillful ways of recognizing there's a view and there's the clinging and there's the result and to get interested. To get interested. It's very exciting when we discover that we have this opportunity to dislodge these views, to let go of them. Views about others, views about ourselves. Maybe you have a view that I am somebody who, I can't do public speaking. And so we do anything to avoid it. You know, public speaking can be really scary. You know, social scientists have done tests on these things and they score you know, fear of rejection by your peers right up there with fear of death. You know, so it can be terrifying, you know, fear of public speaking, but if we get interested in it and say, well, that's a view. I'm not thinking that I can't speak in public all the time. That view appears and disappears. It's not ultimately me. You know, sometimes I forget about it completely. You know, it's just when I put on the spot and I'm asked to give a speech, or, and then I suddenly realize and all that view comes up. I'm somebody who can't speak in public. Well, we can get skilled. We can play tricks with ourselves. So one trick when we come across these views of ourselves, one trick is to exaggerate them. Yeah. I am so hopeless that if I, if I even try to speak in public, everybody's going to boo. Everybody's, I'm going to, somebody's actually probably going to kill me. That's probably what's going to happen. I'm probably going to die. That's what will happen if I even try. I'll be publicly shamed on Twitter and, and Facebook. I'll be utterly, utterly humiliated. And of course, <laughs> you see, well, it's, it's a bit silly. <laughs> Actually, you know, most audiences you speak to are really wishing you well and thinking very kind thoughts about you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we can start to see how ridiculous it is. Uh, or also what's helpful, uh, another trick you can play if you find these views is you can voice the opposite. Like in that case... Uh, yeah, I'm somebody who can't speak in public. I'm one of the best public speakers. Everybody's going to be completely wowed by everything that comes out of my mouth. 
they're going to want to record it, they're going to want to invite me to come back and speak again, and then they're going to publish it, and it's going to make me famous. Well, likewise, of course, you realise, well, that's a bit silly as well. So, finding these tricks which connect us to the views and then show them up for being relative. Somebody that you live with, that you you really don't like, you think, he's a real rat bag, that character. If you're in the monastery, some Ajahn who you particularly dislike, and he's a complete rat bag. There's nothing good you can say about him. Or the opposite. Actually, I really love that guy. He's he's somebody I just can't wait to see him the next time. Now, of course, when we talk about that, it sounds ridiculous, but our attachment of views are ridiculous. Really, they, they ruin our happiness. They ruin our peace of heart and peace of mind. But how do we dislodge them? We need to get skilled. And not just mentally agile and interested, but also... Yeah, as uh, I'm regularly pointing out, in the body. Yeah. If we find views that we're feeling stuck on, yeah. bring it into the body, bring the investigation to the body. How, how do your eyes feel? How do your eyes feel? Yeah. Yeah. Feel how your eyes feel. Are they soft and caring? and gentle and happy eyes floating comfortably in the eye sockets? Or are they locked in staring position, uh, pushing people away with our frightened stare? we We can do something about that. Or the neck. Many of us hold a lot of unhelpful tension in the neck. If it means finding a, a good teacher of Alexander technique, well, that's fine also. And they can induct us uh, with skillful touch into feeling what it feels like to not be stressing in the neck. Uh, and I should emphasize, of course, don't look at me. It might have something to do with the fact that I fell off a motorbike when I was 19 and didn't have a helmet on and landed on my head and shoulder and, and I think it's all been a bit wonky ever since. So, yeah. But the better thing is not to look at other people but to look inwards, to feel inwards. Yeah. Or the belly, we can really hold a lot of rigidity in our stomach. Yeah. Softening. Yeah. Softening our body posture, learning to hold our body lightly, hold our views lightly. This kind of inquiry helps reveal deluded views for what they are. We had a young monk living here some years ago who went on Tudong, walking up the the east coast uh, towards Berwick upon Tweed. And when he came back, he... He explained to us how when he reached Holy Island, he was looking forward to walking out to Holy Island. And sure enough, he was there. The tide was out, so it seemed suitable. But there was a very dense fog. And he couldn't see. He could barely see a few metres in front of him. But he's a very uh, determined uh, 
fellow, even perhaps a little stubborn, <laughs> and uh, he really wanted to get out to Holy Island. So he's standing there on the shore. Holy Island has got to be at right angles, so if I walk straight, I'm going to reach Holy Island. The fact that there's no bearings, it's all fog, uh, that should be all right. So he, he determined, he set off very carefully, very carefully, determined to get there. And, and he walked for quite a long time, but um, you can perhaps imagine where he ended up, <laughs> exactly where he started out from. He just went out there, and, you know, unbeknownst, and turned around and just did a complete circle. And he was so convinced that he was walking in a straight line. He was so sure that he was going to get to Holy Island. And he didn't. That's, that's delusion. Mm. We can be so sure. We can be so sure that we're right. And sometimes that feeling of certainty we have when it's a rigid sort of certainty where we're not allowed to question it or if somebody else questions it we get angry that kind of certainty perhaps belies the attachment that we have to a fixed position so if it happens to us the wise thing to do is to own up to it as quick as possible that was delusion that was delusion lucky the Tide didn't come in while he was out there walking around in circles. And I also remember when Ajahn Sumedha first sent me down to start the monastery in Devon and I was getting myself in a bit of a pickle. I wasn't walking around in circles but I was certainly struggling. You know, I was a very young monk and I'd only been a monk for about seven years and I think I was about 30 years old and I certainly didn't feel ready to be starting a monastery and this was a brand new community down in Devon and it was a lay community very enthusiastic people who really wanted a, a monastery wanted a, a bihara there and so Hudson Samoda said off you go uh, so I went on down there and uh, uh, giving instruction or giving teachings to the and the group of enthusiastic lay people, that wasn't so bad. And, and supporting the junior members of the Sangha, that was more challenging. But what was really challenging was managing myself, managing my own mind. I was so self-critical. You know, I was really struggling a lot. And I can remember when Ajahn Sumedha came down to visit once and we were out for a walk. I forget exactly what we were talking about, but uh, he just turned to me and, and looked at me and he said, you don't have to be like me, you know. Um, and I, oh, what a relief. Oh, thank goodness. Well, obviously I'm not like Ajahn Sumato. So what was I doing trying to be like Ajahn Sumato? Well, I was trying to be successful. Ajahn Sumato was successful. He doing a marvellous job at running Chittas Monastery and was, uh, developing wonderfully and, and I was attached to some view or other probably, probably the view that I had to succeed I couldn't fail mm -hmm. success and failure is very easy to attach to the pleasant feeling of succeeding or the pleasant feeling which comes from praise or the pleasant feeling which 
where it comes from being popular is these worldly winds that we get blown by. Well, our teachers, if we have good teachers, that's one of their jobs is to point out where we're attached to views because often it's so difficult for us to see for ourselves. I often think of practices like it's like looking for your glasses. You know, you put your glasses down somewhere, but you can't see clearly enough to find that which is going to help you see clearly enough. You're kind of fumbling around looking for something that's going to help you be able to see. And that's often what it's like trying to locate these deluded views that we're identified with and attached to. So we have teachers who are patient enough and kind enough to point out the views and where and when we're attached to them, that's a, that's a good fortune. And, uh, so having a vision of the path can be helpful, but let's be careful that we're not attaching to those visions. Having a vision of, of what it means to live a wise and compassionate life can be very beneficial. But again, if we attach that vision, like me trying too hard you know, to succeed or to be perfect, you know, not letting myself fail, not letting myself learn, being so goal-oriented that I couldn't actually receive what I was doing. I couldn't learn from even getting it wrong, even though I was getting it wrong on all sorts of levels. So attaching to comparing. There can be constructive comparing and compulsive comparing. It can be helpful to compare ourselves with other people. But if we're attached to it again, thinking I should be like that, that's a deluded view. Or attaching to the idea that we don't need traditions, we don't need teachings, we don't need teachers. Uh, uh, Certainly there are people like that around. Um, Iconoclasts who attach to the view that traditions and symbols and rituals are all obstructions. If our focus of emphasis in the spiritual life is on awareness itself, we can use rituals, we can use tradition, we can use symbols, we can even make mistakes and learn from getting it wrong. If we're focused on experiences, then there's a risk that we'll just be pitting one experience up against another. Like having to always be number one. Having to always succeed is uh, something that in our culture there is really quite a lot of and uh, something that's useful to pay attention to. Mm. Mm. I think in our monastic communities there's a lot of the conflicts that arise and come out of this one-upmanship, always having to be number one. It's understandable, again, if you look back at the conditioning process we go through, it's understandable, there are the causes, there's the effect. What can we do about it? Well, we get interested in it. The view that I have to always be number one, I have to always win. And once we see it, we say, well, that's just a view. I don't have to always win, but I want to always win. I love winning. 
right, I can't stand losing. But once we see that, well, then we can get interested in losing. In fact, we can even play games with it. Yeah, you can. Uh, I remember being at the breakfast table and the community breakfast and catching myself. I forget now exactly what the situation was, but trying to be clever or something and and being caught out and trying to be clever and and then recognizing you, you can rush to reestablish yourself or you can feel the feeling of humiliation at having been caught out and let that teach it. If awareness is the refuge, it's all right. Humiliation is all right. Looking like an idiot, actually, can be fine. You are an idiot. <laughs> caught up and trying to be clever when you're not clever. Caught up and trying to be funny when you're not funny. You crack a joke and nobody laughs. And, well, what do we do in that situation? You feel it. Feel like an idiot. Feel it freely of our commitment and practices to awareness of self. It's all right to feel humiliated. Yeah, the heat of humiliation yeah, can be like a lever that shows us how to let go, how to get unstuck, unhooked from some view. And we always have to be the clever one, the smart one, the winner. Mm. Mm. Learning to let go of our views or learning how to hold our views more gently, more lightly. Mm. Mm. Appreciating the place for gentleness, for softness. Yeah. It's not immediately obvious the place in spiritual life. We, sometimes we are overly impressed with attaining and striving and succeeding and you know, <coughs> learning to lose or learning to be gentle. It's not obviously significant. Mm. But sometimes these very ins- apparently insignificant things are really profoundly significant. You don't have to have a lot of something for it to be significant. For instance, you don't have to have a lot of iodine in your diet before you're healthy. You don't have to be short of a lot of iodine before you develop a goiter. Have you ever seen a goiter? I remember being on arms round in Thailand once and coming across this woman with a a great big goiter, a very grotesque-looking condition with the thyroid gland is swollen and you almost never see it in the West because we all take iodized salt and so we don't like iodine so we don't get goiters it's a trace element you need a small amount of it but it's very significant mm-hmm. just because something doesn't look significant doesn't mean to say it's not significant mm-hmm. if the way we approach practice is, means we're fixated on having special experiences we can get lost we can throw ourselves out of balance even more but if our emphasis in practice is on holding our views lightly and paying attention to purifying awareness itself then we get a better perspective on the way we're affected by experiences praise and blame, gain and loss pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance the eight worldly dhammas, the eight worldly winds that most of us would be familiar with. And 
enlightened beings, thoroughly awakened beings, all experience praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance. There's no escaping these eight worldly conditions. Everybody gets blown around by them. But what matters is do we get blown over by them? If we've got a good perspective, if, we've got, if we're established in right practice, if we're established in awareness, if awareness itself is the teacher, if the Buddha is our refuge, when the Buddha is our refuge, you say, the Buddha is my refuge, what we're saying is awareness itself is the teacher. And then whatever experience arises, <coughs> agreeable or disagreeable, then there's a better chance that we'll learn from it. And in fact, a lot of these experiences strengthen us. They help us put down deeper roots. We used to have a, a Bodhi tree in the reception room in the house. Somebody gave us a Bodhi tree. And um, I was aware that uh, you know, the trees, when they're nat- out in nature, what helps them put down deep roots is the, when the winds blow. when trees are not subjected to winds they don't put down such strong roots and so being aware of this I I would regularly go into the reception room in the morning and I would give the Bodhi tree a little shake and and, uh, with the idea that this was helping put down roots but not just the idea that it was helping put down roots but also the understanding that when we're blown around by experiences we can benefit from that even if it's like losing, even if it's like feeling humiliated, even if it's like being ignored, even if it's like pain, disagreeable conditions. If our practice is established in the cultivation of awareness itself, then I would suggest that we can trust that our Bodhi tree is going to be putting down deeper roots. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.